Hello, good day, welcome to Party in China, Series 2, Episode 25, our 50th. And they said we'd never make it. By they, I mean me. I thought I'd have finished my story by now, so thanks for sticking with me. I knew I was leaving Japan, but whether I was flying to Shanghai or Sydney was undecided when I went to bed after that great night in the Kyoto Jazz Club. One of the best ways to make a difficult decision is to write down all the pros and cons. List them side by side, count them, compare them, contrast them, until the best choice becomes clear. Is that what you do? No, me neither. I just let my subconscious decide. That's what you do when you have the anecdote gene. And that's why, after bidding my son a sad farewell, I caught a bus, a couple of trains, and then an Air China jet from Kansai Airport in Osaka to Pudong Airport in Shanghai. I don't remember much about that trip. I was pretty hungover from the free whiskey and all that cigarette smoke. I do have a clear image of the intercity train guard checking all the tickets and then turning and bowing to passengers before leaving the carriage. I also recall watching the sun rise and reflecting on that wondrous common miracle we all share daily. Boy, was I hungover. And on the plane, I remember being assigned the seat next to the emergency exit and being required to read two full pages of safety instructions, which ended with the moronic, indeed oxymoronic, if you cannot read and understand the passenger information, please do inform Air China staff. If you cannot read and understand, oh, idiot. I'd already missed the daily direct bus from Shanghai to Ganyu, so booked into a hotel, the Amasino. Quite a dump, but you paid extra for the convenience of being so close to the main train and bus stations. Ronna had emailed me an itinerary in which I would catch a train to somewhere and then a bus to somewhere else when I'd ring her so she could book me a private taxi back to Aston School in time to teach a couple of afternoon lessons. But I deleted that email. Accidentally. I'd also neglected to turn my phone on when I'd landed. Accidentally. So I didn't know the school was trying to contact me when I went to the pub. Accidentally. I'd been told that resident Westerners bought Western-sized shoes and clothing at a factory outlet near Changshu Road subway station. But it turned out that the directions I'd been given took me past Oscar's pub. Or rather, they were supposed to take me past. So I had a good feed and several pints of Guinness and played pool with an attractive American named Julia and flirted with an attractive barmaid named Vivi and played darts with another American uh, named, I, I don't know, he was some bloke. I have a heterosexual memory. So I didn't get any new shoes, any new clothes or anywhere near Ganyu until the following afternoon. It was as I was preparing for my latest scheme to kill Beelzebub's bird 
that I realised something. I had purchased several hundred fireworks in Shanghai and planned to replace dropping rocks with falling bombs, hoping to cause a cockerel cardiac arrest. But as I organised my armaments along the window ledge, it occurred to me that I hadn't heard the accursed chicken crow once since getting back. Sticking my head out the window, I saw that the cage was empty. My problem had been solved. Well, my problem had probably been eaten. And I celebrated by dancing around the apartment singing. Ding dong, the chicken's dead, the noisy cock, annoying cock. Ding dong, that bastard chicken's dead. Hooray! Despite that relief, the trauma of the bantam terrorist was still with me. So when I was once again awoken before dawn by unearthly wailing, I stumbled groggily out of bed towards the window to commence bombing activities. Until I remembered, the chicken was dead. He was no more. He had ceased to be. He was a stiff. Bereft of life, he'd kicked the bucket. All together now. He'd shuffled off his mortal coil, run down the curtain and joined the bleeding choir in Visibule. He'd snuffed it. Anyway, the wailing wasn't coming through the window, but from the stairwell outside my front door. By now, it had been joined by a chant, and when I took my Akubra hat from where it hung on the front door to cover a big hole, I could see the open door of the apartment opposite, with the walls and floor covered with white sheets. Eight or ten feet inside, there was a chair with a lit candle a large framed photo of the old lady who always gave me filthy looks on the stairs, and a bowl of rice with a pair of chopsticks stuck in it. In one of my very first lunches in the school cafeteria the year before, I'd stuck my chopsticks upright in a bowl of rice and upset nearby teachers, who said that it meant that somebody had died. So the old duck was dead, eh? She was no more. She'd ceased to be. She was a stiff. Oh, let's not do all that again. Several women were chanting and wailing, still wearing their overcoats and mittens, but with a white sheet worn as a robe over them. Around their waists were tied rope big enough to moor the manly ferry with huge knots in the smalls of their backs. There were some children too, but they were wearing their sheets tied around the neck, as if they were pretending to be superheroes. Then some men arrived, wearing black suits with white strips of sheet as armbands, and lots more yelling and moaning happened, but I couldn't see a lot as one bloke with a big fur hat stood in front of my peephole. Well, I was never going to go back asleep now, so made a cuppa and listened as the wailing slowly made its way downstairs. Trying to unobtrusively peek out the living room window, I watched a white minivan pull up and an unfeasible number of people emerge. The women donning sheets and the men armbands. Then the steam from the hot cupper fogged up the view and by the time I'd wiped it away, the wailing gang came out the front gate and joined the minivan mob in the alley. And everybody wailed together while the women untied the knots on each other's backs. And then, like a conjurer's trick or a bunch of clowns, even more people piled into the minivan than had previously pulled out. And it drove away at walking pace 
with the women following, their ropes trailing out behind them, dragging in the dust. When I came out of class at lunchtime that day, the old lady's portrait had been moved downstairs and placed on the same chair as the centerpiece of a makeshift shrine in the alleyway. Some people were sobbing, others were chanting and wailing. Several were on their knees in the dirt in front of it. And around all this, everyone else got on with everyday life. Neither the Aston teachers nor our students paid them any attention at all. And the restaurant next door set off its usual excessive firework display in the alleyway with no regard for the presence or safety of the mourners. Summer begged me to relent on my embargo of Ganyu Foreign Languages School, assuring me that every class had been told in no uncertain terms that offending me would merit immediate expulsion. Maybe my time in Japan mellowed me, or perhaps it was that I had caught up on most of my lost sleep, because I felt bad about causing her so much trouble and agreed to return. Summer assigned Ronna to accompany me to my classes in the hope of discouraging vulgarity, or at least identifying the perpetrator. I am, of course, paraphrasing to save time. Summer's English was good, but she didn't speak like that. I was waiting outside a junior classroom for Ronna to join me. She really shouldn't have left me alone. When two boys came out, grinning conspiratorially, they thought they would outwit the threat of expulsion by swearing at each other instead of at me. So one said, your mother to his mate, who replied, no, your father. They then both turned to me with wide, proud smiles. I appreciated their initiative, so didn't react too violently. Just knocked their heads together, Three Stooges style. That first class was actually quite enjoyable. In my absence, they'd moved onto a new textbook with a storyline featuring a genie called Gizmo or Wizbo or something. A brother and sister found him in a bottle on the beach. They taught him about the modern world, computers, etc. And he did magic for them, cleaning up their room or taking them to the Louvre or the pyramids. And one of the two or three lessons I had to teach in 40 minutes was based on a favorite old joke. The second class was even more fun as I was trying to explain the word magic. Seeking a reference they'd understand, I tried Harry Potter, although the kids didn't recognize the name until Ronna repronounced it. Together we started waving pencils around like wands, but I couldn't remember any of the actual Harry Potter spells, so resorted to yelling, premature ejaculator. Soon the kids were pointing their pencil wands at each other and at me and crying, premature ejaculator, oh, which made me so very happy. Ronna was quite suspicious. She was still asking me what premature ejaculator meant and how to spell it as we walked along a balcony towards my next class. You and your father was yelled out of one of the most senior classrooms. Now I didn't even teach that class. I'd never been in that classroom. I hadn't been in the school for more than a week. 
but in less than a second, I went from mirth to madness, giggling to growling. I was instantly back in that terrible mindset which I'd thought I'd left behind. Although I'd tried to impress upon Summer just how much this insulting disrespect upset me, she didn't really get it until Ronna reported what happened next. Kicking open the classroom door, I burst in, yelling, Who said that? Some girls screamed. Nobody answered. But the biggest kid, huge, a big, beefy 17-year-old, sneered and laughed at me. My next clear memory is of having him up against the blackboard by his throat while he croaked, and Ronna tried to pull my hands from his neck, pleading, Potty, please don't kill the students. Boo is a general negative, so I'm not sure if he was croaking, Don't strangle me, or It wasn't me. Either way, the red mist cleared as quickly as it had come. I dropped him to the floor and fled the school premises, hating myself for overreacting. I couldn't even blame the devil chicken anymore. With Ronna's testimony, there could be no further doubt that I was a clear and present danger to students. So Summer put me on promotional detail instead. They had a recruitment booth at the Su Guo supermarket because it was an upmarket place and a likely joint to find cashed up customers. The strategy was to give free balloons to passing children, engage their parents in conversation and get their names and phone numbers for later sales calls and follow-ups. Well, I couldn't do any of that, so all I could do was blow up the balloons. The Chinese teachers used a foot pump to inflate them, but the air tube was too short for me, so I blew them up by mouth. As they weren't very big, I could usually completely inflate them with one huge breath. A feat which drew an audience of delighted shoppers. And as they were shoddily made, around one in five or six would burst in my face, which drew a much bigger audience of more delighted shoppers. Amid gales of laughter, Pretty Betty translated that they liked the look on my face right after it burst. When we ran out of round balloons, I looked under the counter and found several packets of the long ones used to make flowers and animals and stuff. I'd never tried that before, but how hard could it be? Pretty hard, actually. I found it easier to decide what animal it was after I'd made it, or what animal it might be in the right light, if you closed one eye and squinted. One very attractive older mother took the twisted creation I just handed her daughter and asked in excellent English, what is this supposed to be? Art, I replied. What kind of art? Abstract. She left, looking unconvinced. A few moments later, I remembered the advice to find an English-speaking married woman for a lover and chased after her, but they'd already gone downstairs. My balloon masterpiece, however, was bobbing unwanted at the base of the escalator, with each new approaching step, giving it a shove, keeping it moving, but never actually going anywhere.
I knew how it felt. In coming episodes of Party in China, I demonstrate the second law of thermodynamics, which states that the universe tends towards increased disorder, greater chaos, if you like. In other words, things can only get worse. I am Party Parslow. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Party in China. For more, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.